not so much the boys are back. We've always been here. But Jamie is off today, and that means we're uh, going to need someone to uh, text us some serious estrogen to calm us down today. Because yeah, the uh, testosterone is going. Yeah, I'm good and fired up. Uh, it is messy out there on the roads. We do have Renee here to we keep do. us in line. That's right. Uh, which is an important and thing. And she said she would. Yeah. Uh, we do have some some messy roads out there. I don't know what they were like, but they had already, you know, the t- could the timing have been worse uh, for oh. this little snow squall? No. Uh, so it's just enough of a layer of moisture to mess things up where the trucks are, are have been out and they are out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty good, but it's yeah. about 21 degrees out there. That's uh, 10 or 11 degrees better than we were yesterday, uh, for the kids that are going back to school. And there are still some school closings. You can find them at WGR.com. Um, it, it's, it's going to be a little bit friendlier at the bus stop today, especially since the winds have uh, kind of died down. But when you see that shininess somewhat. out there on the roadway, don't just expect that it's just wet. It could be black ice. Exactly. Meantime, are you looking for a little a hint of spring here? Always. Four weeks from tomorrow, the Tigers will have their first full workout. Woohoo! There you go. A little bit of spring coming your way okay. in just four short weeks. And before you say, well, it's the Tigers. <laughs> yeah. Remember, we used to say that about the Lions, too. We sure too. did. We sure so, did. Uh, you know, and uh, it's... Some really good vibes coming off the Visit Detroit meeting with the commissioner of football yesterday, Roger Goodell, in town uh, to promote the NFL draft that's coming up here in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's just, a, I think, 98, 98 days, days from now. now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mike Tirico leading that discussion. And one of the interesting things is he said, you know, before we came out here, we were having a discussion about officiating. Oh. And they had a, they had a good point. They said, you know what? Receivers drop balls, quarterbacks throw interceptions, running backs fumble, and defensive players miss tackles. Yet we af- expect the officiating to be perfect every time. And is that a fair expectation? Do we need to adjust our thinking that these folks are still human? And uh, Goodell was asked about the officiating, and to a pretty skeptical crowd of, uh-huh, of Detroiters sure. said, He's happy with the condition of officiating in the NFL. And I'm proud of our officials. They do an extraordinary job. They aren't perfect. It's, you know, they're making decisions out there in a matter of seconds. But what we've seen in a variety of circumstances this year, without getting into any specifics, is they get it right and they're still criticized. And, you know, there are two teams out there. Um, so, you know, is he offside? Is he not offside? You've got to call it. Um, you know, that, this is part of their, their job. Um, they, they are the hardest working people I've seen. Um, they take great pride in it. They're individuals who work to try to make sure they're contributing to the game. But we add technology to try to improve that, too. So I'm, in, I'm very proud of what they do. Yeah, and but that leaves unsaid this. When they do screw up, mm-hmm. and there was no question that there was a screw up there, when they went back and looked at the tape, why isn't there more of an appeals process? That's right. Hopefully That's an efficient it. one, because that determined... The win or the loss. It did. It was a determined It made the outcome. Call. It was the outcome. It, yeah. it changed the outcome. Mm-hmm. So, you know, don't – he kind of sidestepped a larger question about what are you going to do about correcting what we saw in Dallas uh, that may have cost the Lions uh, a number one seed. He did talk about the fact that, look, um, 60 million people have an opportunity to watch this NFL draft. And that this is an unprecedented opportunity for the city of Detroit. And he had some advice for the city, of based on all of the other cities that have done this, mm-hmm. from, from Nashville to Kansas City and beyond. 
what he thinks will be the key to success for Detroit. The number one thing for us is to try to, to tell you, do it your way. We want you to do it Detroit style, right? We want you to sh show what Detroit fans and the passion and the community and the downtown, if that's where the location is, and, and let people understand what Detroit's all about. And you won't get a bigger platform. Our, our draft here will probably reach 60 or 70 million people over the three days. There are not many opportunities to do that outside of a stadium. This is going to be where everyone's going to see the people and the places that make this community special. And at the end of the news conference, he, he's, he talked about when his thinking on the sometimes hapless Lions mm -hmm. changed. What do you think that moment might have been? You know, that's a good question. I, I don't know, because I was going to ask you, uh, and I always wanted to know, when they kicked off the NFL season uh -huh. and it was the Lions versus the, the Super Chiefs. Bowl champs. Yeah. yeah, and I'm like, wow, we, we, we're the first, we're the kickoff the Lions are? How did we get that? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't have the time to play the bite, but it came down to this. He said, when the Lions went into Green Bay with nothing at stake and beat Green Bay at Lambeau, he said that's when the discussions began about, should we have this team oh. kick off the season against? Let's find out what these guys are really made of. Wow. We love the culture that's created here. The moxie in Green Bay was impressive. Mm -hmm. Let's see what these guys can really do. And then they went out and beat him. Wow. And that, was, I thought, was a really interesting yeah. moment. We'll, uh, we'll check in with uh, some of the stuff we had there uh, yesterday. Meantime, some uh, polling coming in on the Michigan Republicans, by the way. Mark your calendar. March 2nd at Huntington Place is going to be the date that the GOP gathers to basically choose two-thirds of its delegates uh, and determine whether or not uh, who, who they will be voting for in the nominating convention coming up. Um, those delegates will be determined uh, in uh, earlier in March. I believe it's, uh, excuse me, February. I believe it will be February 15th when they gather in congressional what about a leader? conventions. That's the question. <laughs> During who's, all of this. Who's going to be holding the gavel hey, at right. this March 2nd convention? Who is going to be chair of the party? Which faction of the party? Now, they're all very MAGA. Okay? Yes. They're all on the same page, I think, uh, for most of the delegates for yeah. Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. But who you know, will it be Christina Caramo? Who will it be? And will they get their financial house in order in time to make an impact? We shall see. Uh, but right now, two competing polls that are really pretty hard to... You know, the one thing that it says is Ron DeSantis in New Hampshire is a dead man walking. Uh, no more than 5% of the vote for the Florida governor. Um, Nikki Haley in one poll is tied with Donald Trump, 40 percent each. She is certainly surging there. Um, and uh, again, uh, DeSantis down to just 4 percent. That's from a group called uh, American Research Group. But then there's another one, uh, Boston Herald, Suffolk News, coming in with uh, Donald Trump holding a commanding league, 16 points ahead of Nikki Haley. But again, uh, Nikki Haley showing that when she said that this is basically a two-person race, she may be right. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what it's, uh, it's shaping up to be with those polls. There is some word out of New Hampshire, though, that New Hampshire Republicans are a little disappointed that, Henry, that uh, Nikki Haley is not giving them more face time there. And when she does, she hasn't been taking questions from the audience. And she hasn't really had a big Q&A with voters since she had that Civil War gaffe right. a few weeks ago. Right. She kind of stepped in it again a few days ago when asked about uh, racism in America. Mm -hmm. And she says, America has never been a racist nation. Well, I think some Civil War historians would have some uh, some things to say about that. But 
still the, the, the outcome in New Hampshire clear as mud. One tied, one with Trump with a commanding lead, but Nikki Haley moving on, I mean, on she the, spent, up, but the outside she, rail. She spent most of her money, though, and I thought in time in New Hampshire, even more so than Iowa. Well, she split her time. And let me tell you, there's a lot of um, second guessing about Ron DeSantis's strategy of putting all of his chips into Iowa because he's got no gas left in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. And now he's got to try to reboot in South Carolina. And that's going to be a problem for him. But uh, a lot of Republicans, not necessarily never Trumpers, but never again Trumpers Mm -hmm. who are saying, you know, neither campaign may have both campaigns have made some gaffes here. And the guy that's not making any gaffes right now, at least not on the political battlefield, is Donald Trump's Donald campaign. Trump. Their that's ground right. game has been extraordinary in all three places. Uh, so murals, uh, guy, before we get out of here, uh, Detroit uh, has uh, six murals that are causing a stir after the city council refused payment due to a contract oversight. The city allocated $215,000 for the artwork, but... Detroit Planning and Development Department Director Antoine Bryant failed to present the contract to the council as required by the city charter. He admitted his mistake. Conrad Mallett Jr. Uh, emphasized the council's crucial role in approval. With the absence of approval, the city won't respond to the vendor's invoice. The vendor, Street Art for Mankind, may pursue some legal action, which I think that will happen. And even uh, Conrad Mallett said they probably will pursue legal action and will probably come to some type of settlement and stuff. But, yeah, I mean, to know that the money is set aside, but you still have to go before city council to get a vote to spend it. And these murals are all with the idea of pleasanting, you know, making this a more pleasant and appealing Absolutely. place for the visitors for the NFL draft. That's it. Yeah. Uh, when we come back at 635, going to be talking to a gentleman who's trying to unite the Michigan Republican Party, a gentleman from Oakland County who wants to be the new chairman, Vance Patrick. We'll also be talking with folks in Washington about this stalemate over Ukraine and Israeli funding and immigration. Senate GOP says we're on board. We believe that we got some good immigration pledges from Democrats. House GOP saying not so fast. We'll get into that uh, before the hour is out. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Rick Stroud, the Buccaneers reporter for the Tampa Bay Times. Let him size up the Lions opponents. It's all ahead on JR Morning at 619. It's going to be hot in Ford Field on Sunday when the Lions host the Buccaneers in the divisional round. It's a rematch of week six when Detroit's defense held the Buccaneers without a touchdown and just two field goals. Baker Mayfield, 19-37, 206 yards, no touchdowns, and he threw an interception. Let's hear what the other side has to say. Let's bring in Rick Stroud, Buccaneers reporter for the Tampa Bay Times, recently awarded uh, Writer of the Year. And I read one of your most recent articles, Rick, and you said this is the Bucks revenge tour. Explain. <laughs> well, it could be. Um, they got revenge on the Philadelphia Eagles. That's about it. Yeah, it's it's the way it sets up. Um, you know, they they lost a lot of games this year, but um, they lost to the Eagles. Of course, they, they were able to get them in the playoffs. Lost to the Lions, no doubt. And then if they were to win this game, you know, depending on the outcome of uh, – the game on Saturday, they could play San Francisco, another team that they lost to, and who knows, maybe the Buffalo Bills are in the Super Bowl. So we're getting way ahead of ourselves. But I (laughs) do think, uh, you know, to say the very least, I do think that um, there is some value, uh, you know, when you you play a team twice in the season. And when they played the Lions and when they played the Eagles, this was a a different football team. They, You know, Dave Canales had never called plays before in the National Football League. They're still trying to find their identity on offense. Baker, obviously – 
um, was was still getting time on task with his receivers. And defensively, they don't have the same group of players. I mean, they've added uh, a lot of young guys are now part of that equation, whether it's Kalijah Kansi, Yaya Diaby, um, you know, even K.J. Britt has, has played uh, a lot along with Devin White, an inside linebacker. Um, their corners are healthy. And, and, you know, so there's a lot of things uh, that did not happen back in October, November that are happening for them now. Rick, uh, the uh, Philadelphia Eagles just imploded. They just could not do anything against Baker and, and, and the Bucks. Is it Was it the Bucks or was it Philadelphia that did it? Well, obviously, I mean, you know, Philadelphia's not been playing well for some time. And I think this, that, you know, when you get to this time of the year, um, there's really two things that, that you need. Um, and you need a little bit of luck on your side, too. But but you got to have good health. You know, that's number one. And when the Bucs had won Super Bowls, they had very few, if any, players that were hurt. And, and they were fortunate that way. So if, if you are if you have all your guys, um, and, and then you have to get hot at the right time. You know, I know the Lions have played well all year. But you got to be playing well in December. And, you know, even though uh, this team had uh, kind of a poor game against New Orleans, uh, did not play exceptionally well against Carolina, although I think Baker Mayfield's health was part of that, um, they, you know, they've won six out of seven. So they've had that going for them. But there's no question that, look, there's dysfunction in Philadelphia. Um, you know, changing coordinators with Matt Patricia did not work, to say the least. Uh, their defense, you know, tackled poorly. Um, they really didn't do anything that that was uh, winning football. And, you know, when they played them the first time, the Eagles ran for, you know, 200 yards on, on 40, 40 carries. And then, you know, this past time it was a season low in rushing. I think Jalen Hurts only ran one time in the third quarter for five yards. So there's definitely a lot of things going on in Philadelphia that, that they'll have to sort through. But nobody cares, right? You get to this time of the year, and it's it's uh, it's winter go home. And um, so, you know, the, the the Bucks did play well in that game on Monday night, and they made plays um, with some of their uh, receivers, not named, you know, Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. So it was a good day overall. Yeah, we know about Mike Evans and Chris Godwin, but if, if for those of us that haven't been following the Buccaneers closely, what might be the most unheralded? but uh, noteworthy part of this team that we need to watch out for on Sunday? Um, well, I mean, on the offensive side of the ball, you know, they have some explosive uh, young players. I mean, Trey Palmer uh, can really go, you know, and what has happened is teams uh, typically double Mike Evans. They double uh, Chris Godwin. They play a lot of cover two uh, if those guys are on the outside in particular. So that leaves one-on-one opportunities for some pretty fast guys, whether it's Trey Palmer, uh, Devin Tompkins, uh, who's a young player. They have some speed. Uh, and I think if you go back and watch the Lions games, they didn't, they didn't hit these plays, but they had some opportunities down the field mm-hmm. uh, one-on-one. And I think that Dave Canales against the Eagles was very aggressive, and I think they'll stay aggressive trying to get the ball uh, down the field and some of those explosives because those are just the looks they get. You know, Rashad White uh, has run the ball better the second half of the season. He's also a weapon in space, um, you know, as, as a check down, as an outlet to, to Baker. Um, so they, they've got some answers that they really didn't have earlier in the year. Um, I just think it's been, you know, kind of uh, letting those young guys grow and develop a third receiver. Um, and then David Moore, who, who started on the practice squad, is a veteran receiver from Seattle. 
he's come on the second half of the year and given them that veteran presence as a possible number three. So a few more guys, Kate Otten had eight catches or tight end as a career high last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Baker's kind of spreading the ball around a little bit. Rick, were you in the press conference? This was online when a reporter asked Todd Bowles how you guys are preparing for the weather in Detroit. And he said, well, it's a dome that we play on. <laughs> yeah, um, wasn't my question. I like, I would use the, the term reporter loosely. Okay. Um, and I don't. And I don't want to impugn anybody. You no, know, like no, don't it, say it, names, but it was funny. No, and, and and to be honest with you, you know, unfortunately, the way media has gone these days, um, there are some blurred lines, to say the very least. I'm mm-hmm. not sure who with who or, gets or credentials, people, right, Rick? Yes, I, I don't know how that happens, and, and and I have asked and still don't have any answers. So. Not responsible for the content of the press conferences, but um, you should be warm was, and cozy. Was, I promise you. Yeah, it's a dome. it was. Yeah, it was bizarre. I don't think they. When was the last time they played at Tiger Stadium? <laughs> oh God, I was a kid, man. Seventy-five, seventy-six. Yeah. Yeah. The only ones that are worried about the weather is like me. Like, how many layers do I need? Because I, you know, I live in Florida. I have some clothing. But well, let me like... let me give you the lay of the land. I believe you'll park at CompuWare, and it's a little bit of a walk to get to the stadium. I know. I remember this. Yes, yeah. I remember this. So I think you should maybe right. wear some uh, long underwear, if yeah. you will. Yeah. And then there are bathrooms. Oh, you could take yeah. that off. If you got a moose jaw uh, handy down there in yeah. Florida, uh, you get to, <laughs> see. Or better yet, buy online. You still may have time. Yeah. You can get the twenty four hour. Uh, <laughs> there you go. There. Yeah, yeah, little, yeah, tech, there you little go. tech clothing. Uh, just briefly, yeah. I wanted to ask you about Baker Mayfield. His resurgence. He was cast off by the Browns. He went to a bunch of different clubs, and he signs this one year deal. Uh, are the Bucks going to keep him? Is the he... bargain of the century: yeah. four million bucks. Yeah, four million. He's turned it into about seven million with his uh, incentives. But um, you know, listen, I, I I give Baker a lot of credit. Um, you know, we all saw from a distance and you know and read things. You know, I think you got to look at his story and you know being that overachiever, walking on a Texas Tech, Oklahoma, winning the Heisman, all of that, and then going to the worst franchise. You know, one in thirty-one. Third year though, people forget he went to the playoffs and won and beat the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, and and really gave Kansas City a run as well. This guy's been through some stuff. He's grown up a lot. But but the one thing Todd Bowles, we liked him coming out in the draft back in the day when he was with the Jets and ended up with Sam Darnold when they picked third. Um, he told Baker to be Baker. Um, and you know sometimes you know you, he has that moxie and that swagger about him. Um, he's an absolutely he's the Pied Piper down here. Guys fell in love with him uh, right away. Uh, he he was smart to attach himself to the offensive lineman first, and he was all over town, uh, various games and things. Uh, but but he has he has played really well, and 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 you know I think he doesn't get credit for how smart of a football player he is and quarterback. He's also tough as hell. Um, he's got to stop taking so many hits, some of them unnecessarily. Uh, he's, he's been dealing with with really uh, bruised ribs. I don't think he should have played in the Carolina game. But all he's done is come out here and had a career yard, year in yeah. uh, mm-hmm. passing yards, uh, touchdowns, all of that. Completion, and, right? And he's, yeah, completion. And he's won, you know. And, and I think football is fun for him again. So both sides want to do something. It always comes down to the money, but the Bucks will have more money next year. And I really do believe that Baker will be their quarterback. Maybe you're looking at a – a three-year deal similar to what maybe Geno Smith signed uh, a year or so ago, but uh, we'll see. But no, I think 
I think he's very happy here, and, and uh, you know, with where they're going to be drafting now, it seems likely that they'll resign him. Well, Rick, we appreciate your time, reporter for the Tampa Bay Times. Stay warm as you come here to Detroit. Uh, last time the Bucks defense held Detroit to just 40 yards. Hopefully Jameer Gibbs, David Montgomery can do a little better than that. We've got a primary coming up uh, February 27th. Uh, Republicans will be choosing about one-third of their delegates in the nominating process. And then the other two-thirds are basically going to be chosen at Huntington Place March 2nd. The question is, who's going to be holding the gavel for that get-together, that state party convention to choose the delegates? Will it be Christina Caramo, the embattled chair who claims to have the majority support of the state uh, committee? Or will it be somebody else, one of those that would like to challenge her and unify the party? Is Vance Patrick, who's chair of the Oakland Republican Party currently, but would like to lead the state party. And he joins us live on this snowy Thursday morning. Vance Patrick, hello. Good morning, Guy. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you, too. Uh, and, and and not in the shadow of the aquarium. Uh, it's it's <laughs> good, good to connect. Just give me, from your perspective, just how deep are the divisions in the state Republican Party right now? Well, you know, we've got a lot of great people in the state, Guy, and unfortunately, um, we're, the state party is just not working for us right now. You know, in Oakland County, we've had to double work uh, because of the fact that there is no state party. At this time right now, we should be having 100 employees from the state party canvassing around the state, and um, we don't have that. Oakland County's raised uh, a ton of money through events and different functions. And we've hired a canvassing coordinator or a field coordinator, and they're out there knocking a thousand doors a week and engaging our voters. And unfortunately, the Michigan GOP hasn't uh, stepped up to the plate. So it's left the county parties um, having to double up their efforts to get good Republicans elected uh, this November. Uh, Vance, you know, I, I've always heard that it's it's always about the loot, whether it's in, in business or, or even in, in political circle, circles. And I, I know that Christina Caramo, they say a lot of her critics say she she can raise uh, some cane, but she can't raise any money. And will you be able to raise, uh, you know, money for this election cycle to help some of the people who are running? If you become well, like- the chair, if you become the chair. Right, right. Well, Lloyd, we had, um, when I took over Oakland County Republican Party, we started off, Rocky gave us a great start um, last year. And then what we did was we started event, uh, working on events and outreach to the community. Uh, the events have been very successful. Obviously, we had um, Donald Trump here in uh, June of last year, 3,000 people for a sit-down dinner, massively successful fundraiser, which has allowed us to continue paying rent on our building um, on Woodward and Square Lake there, continue to have an executive director paid, continue to have this um, uh, canvassing coordinator that's uh, reaching a thousand doors a week. So again, events, fundraising, and and the the large donors that are out there, Lloyd, Mm -hmm. they, they didn't feel safe about investing in this party. And again, my track record with Oakland County is, look, we've done this with Oakland County. We've only got 10 more months. I tr- Trust me with this. We will take care of your money. We will get this our candidates over the finish line. So does it start with transparency? And what kind of transparency have you seen under the leadership of Christina Caramo? And also, 
is she being an honest broker here? She says that her opponents are nothing but deep state establishment Republicans who are trying to undermine the grassroots movement. Well, you know, um, Guy, I when Christina was elected, um, she's she, I helped with her in her state, her uh, secretary of state race. She just lives a couple miles away from me. Um, so it, it's nothing about Christina. We just need to realize the fact that nothing's been happening. The budget committee was giving um, was given um, instead of bank statements, they were given spreadsheets. So the the budget committee for the MIGOP was suspicious almost from day one. So again, transparency, it, it, it just didn't seem like it got off the ground. And again, I offered to help out with my, would you like to use the uh, Oakland County Republican office as the satellite office? We're the largest county in the state and we're right down the street from her house. She said, no, I think we'll look elsewhere. Then when it came to when we had our Trump event, I asked her if she would help promote the event. No answer. My executive director sent her flyers. Can you please promote these across the state trump's coming to michigan it's not that he's coming to oakland county he's coming to michigan we should all be proud of it and we got a big fat zero help for that event wow wow so the the republican national committee they've been pretty quiet are you disappointed they haven't said anything i haven't uh, you know responded to what's going on here in the state of michigan well lloyd the, the i think they're waiting until saturday because um I've been telling a lot of people you've, you've got Christina and then you're going to have whoever comes out of this on Saturday. So you've got an A team and a B team. Now the national committee is going to look at everything and this may even go into the court system. Mm-hmm. Now they're going to pick whether it be the A team or the B team. Well, is it A so and B that, or two A's? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I, And I want to be on the B team guy. <laughs> Um, yesterday, we should point out that the, the, the Karamo folks have released a statement saying that uh, RNC Chair Ronald Romney McDaniel has nothing to say here, that it needs to be a full vote of the RNC. So that's going to have to get hashed out. i got to ask you, though, we're heading into this February 27th primary. Other than your event in Oakland County, we have yet to have a visit from any of the candidates. In fact, I don't know of either the Haley or the DeSantis campaign having one right. paid staffer here. We're being incredibly neglected. You know, we could we have fought harder to have a legit up and down primary instead of this split primary convention system? Well, guy, let's go all the way back to uh, the Mackinac event back in um, when the, the GOP, when the Michigan Republican Party had their event on Mackinac. No presidential candidates were there. It was it was a dismal performance. It was unfortunate that. Um, it just never took off. And they who's to blame for that? The Democrats for moving the primary data, Republicans for not fighting harder to get it uh, a waiver from the RNC. Well, our Michigan GOP, because the fact they didn't canvass the the uh, events, they, they, they didn't get speakers. We didn't get uh, presidential candidates to come out for this. Vivek did show up at the last minute, but um, Mackinac was a, 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 a definite turning point when a lot of people started to realize that Maybe this administration's not cut out for it. She she said the presidential candidates were invited, but they were told not to attend. She said this deep state thing is yeah. is really real. So, Got to ask you, Vance, before well, we let boy, you go, I mean, the timing yeah, of this because we're, we're we're about out of time. But the timing of this, you want to be chair? When is there going to be a vote? Right. Well, Saturday is the vote to elect um, the B team, and then 
it's up in the air after that. Again, courts or RNC will recognize um, the okay. A team or the B team. Like you said, guy, I, I'd, I'd say A and A team, but um, it's just got to be this is one more step into hopefully um, getting Michigan back on the track again. Some clarity and, and cleaning up the mess. Um, Vance Patrick, we wish you well in that endeavor. Um, we know that Republicans are uh, more than a little dismayed over all of this and uh, want to see some unification. And you're, you're a guy that has the ability to reach out. There are a lot of different factions here, and I, we know that Pete Hoekstra, Tudor Dixon, there are others that uh, are seeking this as well, and we, uh, we hope to have a, a, a good, healthy debate over that. Thanks for your time this morning, Vance. Thanks, guy. Have a good afternoon, guys. You too. You too. When we come back, we're going to check in in Washington. The deal, supposedly to get more help for our southern border, but also for Ukraine and Israel. Why is it being stonewalled in the House? We'll get a checkup on that from our friends at Fox News next on JR Morning. We understand that there's concern about uh, the safety, security, sovereignty of Ukraine, but the American people have those same concerns about our own domestic sovereignty and our safety. In our security. That is Speaker Mike Johnson basically scuttling a Senate hatched deal that would fund more resources for the U.S. southwest border while also providing some critical funding to Ukraine and even uh, long range into Israel. Uh, Mike Johnson getting hard pushback from the far right in his caucus, basically put in the same position that Kevin McCarthy was in. So it casts doubt whether or not there can be. Any kind of a deal here. Let's get the latest from Ryan Schmelz, Fox News radio correspondent and WJR contributor, uh, who is with us this morning. Ryan, good morning. Hey, good morning. So, Ryan, uh, talk about maybe some insights into the atmosphere of that meeting yesterday, maybe some key highlights that you know about. Right. So, so from basically what we understood is that Speaker Mike Johnson acknowledged that Ukraine is an issue and also President Biden acknowledged that there needs to be changes at the southern border. And I think that there is a big agreement amongst Democrats and Republicans that that is the case. But of course, there are just certain things that each side wants that the other side is just simply not willing to give on. And I think one of the things that we've constantly heard about uh, from both Democrats and Republicans is this issue of parole, which yes, essentially, yeah. you know, you would you would allow the Department of Homeland Security to have this power that would give exec, essentially executive powers in granting people parole to come into the country. And why Republicans are very hung up on this is because if Republicans are able to get changes to the asylum system or how many people are deported, they believe that DHS would still be able to bypass all of those changes and use this executive power on parole to grant people amnesty when they come to the country. Yeah, which is something the Biden administration said that they were not going to do, that if you came through a legal checkpoint and declared asylum, you would be allowed in while your case is pending. But these are people that try to come in illegally, and they're they're being given this parole. Um, Why is that such a hard pill to swallow for both Senate and House Democrats who are going to suffer some real political blowback over this. We saw that in Iowa, it was the number one issue. Right. I think some of the, some of that is, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to get into Democrats' heads and figure out why, in fact, parole is something that they're, they're kind of hung up on because, you know, they're not really giving us too much information about what goes on in these negotiations, right? I think we've heard a little bit of rumors that are going around about, you know, what this deal might look like on the Senate side. And Speaker Mike Johnson has kind of already come out and said that he's not going to support uh, what the Senate's working on. Essentially, Republicans have put their foot in the ground and said that they want what's called H.R. 2. 
And H.R. 2 is essentially a, a border security package that Republicans passed last year uh, that brings back a lot of Trump era policy that obviously Democrats aren't going to bite on. But I think there is this thought amongst Republican circles, at least with the ones I've talked to, who believe that as long as they stay firm on H.R. 2, that's eventually going to force Senate Democrats to come to the table and negotiate with them. And then they'll have to give them a more conservative deal. Ryan, we we still have that uh, motion to vacate the rule still hanging over the heads of uh, the Speaker Mike Johnson. And uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene says if uh, he moves forward with funding Ukraine, that she's going to file a motion to vacate the chair and that's going to start the vote. And it's just, you know, does he have anything to worry about? It's hard to know. You know, it does not appear based off of the Republican circles I've been talking to that there is an appetite for another motion to vacate. I think in Democrats have even said that they feel that if Republicans do another motion to vacate, that almost guarantees that Democrats are going to be able to flip the House come election time. Now, of course, you know, they feel that there are some Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene who have said if he caves and puts this border security package and this uh, emergency supplemental on the floor as it is, then yes, they would have to vacate the chair. But, you know, there's still a substantial amount of Republicans who are strongly opposed to that. And nobody besides Marjorie Taylor Greene has outright said that they are, you know, trying to take Speaker Johnson's job. Some people have alluded to it, but nobody is outright saying it the way that they aggressively went after Speaker McCarthy on this issue. At the same time, though, you know, Speaker Johnson has made it very clear that he's going to have to see something different in this emergency supplemental if, in fact, he's going to bring it to the floor. So if he if he's able to negotiate a more, you know, uh, stingent border policy package as a, as a part of this, will those who have been critical of it uh, flip on this issue? And that's the big question mark. Mitch McConnell is trying to be the voice of reason here. He says, look, um, we're in a divided government. We're in the minority in the Senate. We have looked at this. We've only got a three-vote margin in the House of, of majority. And saying this this is basically the best we're going to get in divided government, and maybe better than what we would have gotten if we were in command of all three branches. Right. Well, what's interesting is, is that there are some members, and there's one, who's Roger Marshall of Kansas, who I've talked to about this several times, And he's been one of the more critical members of the Senate when it comes to Ukraine funding. But he has been open minded on this uh, emergency supplemental package because he believes that this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to negotiate border policy changes with Democrats. Because I think the thought is that if they're able to negotiate these policy changes with the makeup of the White House and the Senate as it is right now and very slim margins in the House for Republicans, They think that they'll never have to worry about any Democrat administration overturning these laws if, in fact, they're able to negotiate with them now. All right. Brian Schmelz uh, staying on top of it for us. We will get updates at the top and the bottom of the hour from you as they try to hammer out a resolution on this. Thanks, Ryan. Now, was looking out of our window. Would you say snow covered and slippery on West Grand Uh, Boulevard? Yeah. Yeah. It it is a nasty one out there. Renee is going to keep you updated on all the traffic uh, comings and goings, but do be careful as you head out. A much friendlier day, though, for students, and most students are back in school. And a much friendlier day for parents. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Amen, brother. Yeah. uh, There are just a handful of closings, mostly in rural areas. You can check them out at WJR. Dot com. Uh, we begin your morning with something that's not going to get a lot of attention anywhere else because it's a Wall Street Journal exclusive. And it is this, that uh, four years ago at this time, as the coronavirus was seizing uh, both China and beginning to arrive here, we have now learned that a Chinese researcher isolated, mapped, 
and uploaded the SARS-CoV-2 genetic code to a website run by the USNIH two weeks before Beijing even told us that there was a problem. That they had already identified it. And imagine what we could have done in those two weeks. As the journalist says, the extra two weeks could have proved crucial in helping the international medical community pinpoint how COVID spread, develop medical defenses, and get started on an eventual vaccine. We could have had a two-week head start. So it begs the question, first of all, why didn't Beijing share what they knew when they knew it? And what happened with NIH, that this thing is this mystery disease that they were hearing about as, right. the, as, the, as the code was uploaded? What did the NIH do? Um, on January 16th, 2020, they deleted it because it was never published. The researcher never went further. Well, we know why that is. We know why. <laughs> they were yeah. sh- shut down by yes. the Chinese Communist Party. So a lot of questions. This we knew we were not getting the truth out of them no. anyway. We knew that. And it doesn't help us decide whether the origin was a lab or natural or anything like right. that. But it certainly shows that once again... The silence, the duplicity, the irresponsibility of the Chinese government and the Chinese health apparatus cost the world many, many more lives than it should have. Is, uh, but are, is China responding to that? Oh, yes. They're saying that history will show that they were very transparent and did oh, okay. everything they could okay. do. Okay. All right. And so far, <laughs> but we should say the researcher yeah. that was behind this, she has yet to speak. And you got to you wonder what gulag is she hanging out with the Uyghurs uh, somewhere? Yeah, you know? exactly. Uh, so, Will we ever hear from her? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, the, good, good, good on the Wall Street Journal. If you've got a subscription, by all means, check it out. Yeah, and a significant legal development guy, the Oxford School District, has filed a lawsuit against its insurance company seeking permission to offer five million per bodily injury claim related to the nine lawsuits arising from the tragic 2021 attack. At Oxford High School, the lawsuit challenges the insurance company's interpretation of policy limits, claiming that each individual shot by an assailant constitutes a separate occurrence. The dispute involves a $5 million cap hindering settlement negotiations. Victims' families assert that the insurance company is obstructing a reasonable resolution. The lawsuit's potential impact on insurance coverage law in Michigan suggests it may reach the state Supreme Court. Meantime, in a raucous and uh, divisive meeting last night, the Ann Arbor School Board voted and became one of the first public school districts in the country to pass a resolution calling for a bilateral ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. If you're asking yourself, what the heck is a school board doing getting involved with Mideast uh, politics, that was a question on the lips of many parents who spoke out at this meeting as well. This resolution was born from... Uh, a couple of Jewish members on the school board and a Palestinian member of the school board, uh, Rima Muhammad, who was out with Mitch yes. yesterday. Yeah. She was came forward. It was a very, very yeah. good discussion, I thought. Uh, but she says this is an urgent moral necessity amid a humanitarian crisis and that it needs to end now. Uh, but parents were saying, we haven't hired a superintendent yet. We haven't dealt with COVID learning loss, pandemic learning loss in this community. Aren't there other things? You should be making a much higher priority in the opening month of the year than this, especially because it's so divisive, could lead to much more. We already know what's been going on in campuses across the country. And is Benjamin Netanyahu going to, you know. I'm sure he's hanging on (laughs) Ann Arbor's every word. Um, And here's the other part of this. And I understand people are horrified when they look at the humanitarian suffering in Gaza. Mm -hmm. 
I think all of us should be. Does Israel need to do a better job at this stage now of limiting that kind of fallout? But where was your resolution when Hamas murdered more than 1,500 Jews? And by the way, they didn't call them Israelis. They called them Jews. Jews. They were murdering Jews. Mm-hmm. The 200 taken hostage. Where was your outrage then? Where was your resolution then? They didn't have an answer for that when Mitch asked that question. Mm-hmm. And by the way, um, while Palestinians are trying to gain the hearts and minds of Americans to their cause, what did we see in uh, the streets of New York City on Monday? On, on the King holiday, pro-Gaza, pro-Palestinian groups were protesting at Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital. The cancer hospital. One of the leading cancer hospitals in America. And by the way, kind of personal for us because that's where Mitch took Chica when she was oh, battling... Yeah brain cancer. And he talked about this yesterday on his show. But today, today, the Wall Street Journal brings it up and they said this, it's almost hard to imagine a more grotesque and counterproductive mode of dissent than taking the King holiday as an opportunity to scream at people who are spending their own holiday in a cancer ward. Mm. And at one point, the idiot with the bullhorn says, make sure they hear you. They're in the windows. Well, who the hell is they? Are you talking about Cancer Cancer victims or the parents of them who are having the worst time of their lives and paralyzed with fear about what's going to happen to their loved ones. Yeah. I mean, years ago, Bill Bond said to me, you know, the Palestinians, I so want to support them, but they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. That as soon as they try to, as they make a pretty good case for some independence of their own, they commit a terrorist act or do something that would repel any thinking human being to joining their cause. So the folks in Ann Arbor have your resolution, but realize who you're breaking bread and casting your lot with. The people that were standing outside a cancer ward, mm. screaming the word genocide, which has become one of the most abused definitions I've ever seen, mm. screaming that word at cancer victims and those trying to save their lives. The doctors, the nurses trying to offer compassionate care. Wow. That's, can there be uh, a more repellent form of protest than that? Uh, Let's get to WJR's Business Beat, brought to you by Shelving.com. We rack your world. Here's Jeff Sloan uh, from Startup Nation uh, giving us an update on the startup community here on WJR. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Guy, Lloyd, and Jamie. Listen, guys, one thing is a certainty these days when it comes to running a business, especially a small business, and that is that change is happening at breakneck speed. Just when you think you've got it all figured out, a new disruptive technology or platform comes along that forces you to rethink and reprioritize. And nowhere is that more acute than in the marketing department. So we all want to know, where are the key trends in media and advertising as we head into 2024? Well, a new survey of brands, agencies, tech executives, and media professionals just released by Media Ocean helps us understand just how marketers will be spending their budgets and applying their focus in the coming year. We've got highlights. First, when it comes to the blocking and tackling of marketing, search engine optimization, or SEO, 55% of marketers said that they plan to increase their spend on search in 2024. Now, 56% will increase spend on connected television. 65% will increase digital display and video spend. And the big winner for projected increased marketing spend in 2024, 69% of marketers report that they will increase their spend on social media marketing. 
And all of this while the major loser when it comes to increased spend in 2024 is print. Only 7% of marketers said that they plan to increase their spend on print marketing. Having access to surveys and studies that help you benchmark what your peers are focused on doing in the year ahead is a valuable way to plan your own areas of focus and budget allocations. And this new data from MediaOcean helps you do just that. I'm Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of StartupNation.com, the source for everything you need to start and grow your own business. And that's today's business beat on the great voice of the Great Lakes, WJR. It's a Thursday morning. Once again, time for our weekly couch talk with Dr. Steve Craig, psychologist and corporate coach for Craig Counseling Services in Bloomfield Hills. Uh, Doc, I know you're not in studio with us. You're on the phone because this weather is uh, a little nasty out there, but good morning. Good morning. Yes, I had to pull over to the side of the road to get this done. Oh, it's man. It's a mess out here. you got to be safe. And, you know, Jamie's not here today to give you the right answer on today's topic, so I guess you'll just have to put up with me and Guy. It's all on you, Lloyd. <laughs> all on you. So what's today's issue? Okay, today we have one that's uh, Dr. Steve. My wife and I are constantly arguing about my work schedule. She's right when she says that I work all the time, and I, and I get that she's angry when I have to go in on weekends or evenings instead of taking time out with our three kids. But she also doesn't understand that I need to make the right impression with my boss, and my boss notices who doesn't come in, and he remembers those things when it comes to promotions and bonuses. My wife doesn't work outside the home, so that makes me responsible for all our income. And in order to meet our retirement financial goals, I need to get a promotion and I need to keep advancing my career. We will need a lot of money saved to keep our lifestyle when we retire, and I'm still 20 to 30 years from that. She tells me I should quit this job and get another, but I know I'll just work all the time in that job to reach our goals. We've tried compromising, but something always comes up at work after a few weeks, and we're right back where we started, and she's frustrated with me. Now I feel like she's blackmailing me because she has started mentioning separating if I don't stop working all the time because she feels like she's a single parent right now anyway. So do I stop working all these hours and give in to her blackmail only to pay the financial price later when we don't have the money to retire? Or do I stand my ground now because I know I'm right about needing to save money and needing to make the right impression on my boss? Well, she Good thing Jamie's not in. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, so the wife uh, is stay home. She takes care of the kids. I take it and wants him to spend more time with her and the kids. And I understand that. But you know, for a man, our job is to profess and provide and protect. And that's what it appears he's doing, trying to make sure that they have what they need to have the lifestyle that they're living and to be able to continue that once he stops working 20 to 30 years from now. Now, on the other hand, what happens when he quits his job or doesn't do what he's supposed to do as far as the, the money is concerned? And then she's upset because they can't live that lifestyle. So then she wants to right. leave them that way. So, you know, the last thing you want to really contend with is resentment in your relationship and regret in your work life. I, I, I just, you know, I, I don't know other than having that conversation and, and just continuing to do what you do. And my thing is this though, doc, if you're making good money and you're getting those bonuses and, and all that, you know, you get vacation time, you get vacation, you spend a good amount of, of time with your wife and yeah. the kids and whatever, and you guys do it up. But I mean, he, he's providing and protecting and professing for you at this point. 
So I got to tell you, this really hits home because obviously when you work in the TV news business, you're working when everybody else is at home watching TV. <laughs> right. And, and so uh, Gail looked at my noon to midnight schedule years ago, and she looked at it this way. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm lucky that you have a job that allows me to do that. Thank you. She also understood. Her only request of when I was working that way was, when you are here, I need you to be fully present. Engaged. And that was not, and understanding that I didn't want to work 12-hour days. I wanted, I didn't want to miss the swim meets or ball games either. But um, I also wanted to fund their college education. I also wanted to make sure that we had nice family vacations so that we could make memories. And that, And so my question to this woman would be, what are you going to give up? If I don't get this promotion, what are we going to sacrifice as a family financially? Are you willing to go back to work? Are you willing to give up that vacation? And how much should I cut my uh, donations to the kids' college fund? Uh, and and kind of come back and say, you know, I don't work for me. I work, I work for, for us. us. <laughs> All right. I, I do wish we had Jamie because I think Jamie is listening at home screaming at the at the radio. Yeah. It, I... I this is a difficult thing, and this is a scenario that comes up all the time because both points here are correct. But there's a just additional perspective we have to think of, too. When you're a therapist, you have the advantage of talking to people in all different stages of life all the time. So I have this guy who might be in his 40s, and then I have people who are in their 70s come in an hour later or people who are in their 20s. But the things you learn is that 20 years from now, the only people who are going to remember that you worked late are your kids because all that doesn't matter then. So we tend to save money in order to live the lifestyle that we're living today. But when we're older, we don't necessarily have the same lifestyle or the same abilities. And, but I'm not saying we shouldn't save money. And I mean, absolutely. We have to, we have to do that. I just always want people to know that the people who are happy, that the retired people who I know who are happy are not necessarily happy because of all the money they saved. They're bolstered, their, their lifeblood at that stage of their life is their memories and their relationships. Yeah. And, and we need to make sure that we're banking the currency of relationships and memories now because that's what's really going to get you through later. Because that, that time when you're with your kids is a really short window when you think about it. It's a short window. Mm -hmm. And so, like I said, yes, I mean, there's always going to be the dilemma because we want to work and save money and push our career. But you can't. it's not just a one-way street. You have to know that that window is limited and you want the currency that you put into those relationships. You're going to need that later just as much as you're going to need the the, the the money that's in the bank. And so make sure when you're present, you're present and make sure you do turn down those work opportunities because you can always make more money, but you can't all re repair those relationships. Okay. Well, so. I'm texting an apology to my kids right now, <laughs> Dr. Steve. <laughs> Great advice for all of us as we uh, finish up our Thursday. Steve, thanks. It's warmer and friendlier in terms of temperatures, but in terms of snow, it is slippery out there, and there's a lot of waiting you as you come out. Give yourself more time uh, if you're heading into work. If you can avoid that, this would be a good day to go hybrid and uh, work from home. 
Uh, but in the meantime, uh, most schools are open. You can check out our school closings at WJR.com. Great get-together yesterday at Visit Detroit. Uh, kind of ramping up enthusiasm for the NFL draft coming our way this spring. And uh, the the guy that was anchoring the uh, discussion is uh, the franchise at NBC Sports, and he joins us live. Mike Tirico, good morning. Guys, good to be with you guys. Good morning. How are we doing? We're doing great. I, I, who knew that the Lions would be such great box office? Your, your numbers on Sunday were huge. Yeah, you know, the, the Sunday night playoff game usually does a good number, and then you add to it the bad weather on the East Coast. A lot of people were in all day. A really good game with Dallas and Green Bay right before. And then the Lions story on top of it. So a ton of people stayed around the TV and turned into a, a fabulous night with you know, 36 million people were thereabouts getting to see the Lions getting to see downtown Detroit. So it was really a great, uh, great week. And we are uh, right back in town here for Sunday late afternoon against the Falcons. And, Mike, you know, you being a Michigander, it had to be great. And I was talking to my uh, brothers uh, and, and my sisters, and I was saying, you know, it just the city looks so good on national television. The shots of the city, Ford Field, the spirit of Detroit, uh, you know, everything just looks so great, which really, I think, lends itself to people saying, hey, you know, I heard one thing about Detroit, but maybe I need to check this place out. The Lions are doing well. It looks good. You know, uh, how big is that as far as getting people to really start taking a look at the city? Well, I think more people are realizing that uh, things in Detroit are not where they were in the financial crisis with bankruptcy or the, the times around there that the city has made a resurgence. And to see that really in large part through these big sporting events when you know there's a game with the Tigers or the Wings or the Pistons on national TV. It's certainly the Rocket Mortgage Classic and the golf when you get people from all over the country coming through here for a week in summer. And, and then the Lions on top of that, beyond the Thanksgiving game. I think you know, the, the great part of sports is that it can help tell the story of an area and rally an area behind the common cause which you know, in our divided times is very difficult to do. It's very hard to get people mm -hmm. to believe in the same thing. But I think uh, the, a lot of folks who live in downtown Detroit who work in or enjoy what the city has to offer uh, believe in the city and love being able to share that. And I think we're seeing that whenever Detroit's in the national spotlight right now. You had a nice discussion with uh, Commissioner Goodell yesterday and, and kind of tipped off the fact that before you guys took the stage, you talked a little bit about officiating, which is obviously a, a, after the Dallas game here in Detroit, kind of a sore point. Uh, first of all, how did you bring up that topic? And just kind of share with us the, the perspective that the, the two of you brought to the stage on that yesterday. Yeah, well, I, I've known the commissioner for a, a long time here, going back to before he was commissioner. So uh, we have conversations on a regular basis about stuff. And you know, officiating is a hot topic issue for people around here, but every city feels like there was a call that cost them a game. And the Lions won't happen to be on a scoring play that got taken down. But trust me, it is the, the existence of almost every talk radio show in every NFL market, bad officiating, bad officiating. What I've learned in getting to know the officials a little bit is that they're the only group on the field expected to be perfect, Right. I misidentified player during the game. I, I did on, on Sunday night of like the 500 IDs. I got two wrong. Uh, Chris Collinsworth made a mistake. Jared Goff made a mistake with his backwards pass. Dan Campbell made a mistake somewhere along the way. Everybody on the field makes a mistake except the officials. When they do, have no, there is no tolerance for it. So I've come to learn that. We were talking about the use of 
instant replay, the use of the eye in the sky, the use of maybe a challenge for the coaches, no matter what the call is. Some stuff's reviewed, other stuff can't be reviewed. The league is very sensitive to it, but I also think they're very, and rightfully so, in an educational mode to say, for the most part, these guys at pretty high speed get it right. So interesting conversation. It's a never-ending conversation, Mm -hmm. and that's not just with us. It's with the league office as well. Mike, how big is it uh, going to be having the uh, NFL draft here when you when we're surrounded by so many other great football towns? Yeah, Lloyd, I, I think that's one of the cool parts of the draft. The league has taken the NFL draft and turned it into this massive, massive event where people show up from all over the country just to see their players pick in the draft. And what has happened is Chicago, Philadelphia, Nashville, Las Vegas have turned this into a mega event. And I thought the commissioner said it was said it well. The best advice to Detroit is do it Detroit style. Put your spin on it. That's why it's worked in other places. And we'll get a lot of people here. I think what is a bonus for Detroit, in addition to everything else, very close proximity for a drive for a half dozen NFL teams with the Delta Hub here, a very easy flight for people who want to come in. I think we're going to see great numbers and great numbers of people in downtown sampling local restaurants, bars, hotels. It's going to be a real boost for the economy to have that for three days. Yeah. Well, it's a big boost having all these playoff games, at least $20 million it per. Right. Um, size up that game for us with the Buccaneers. Uh, Mike, you're a local guy. I know you're, you're in your heart. Uh, you're, you're hoping the Lions do well. But objectively, uh, this is not the same as, as Dan Campbell was uh, very you know, strong about yesterday. This is not the same team that they faced earlier in the season. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I'm always happy for the people around here. You know, the the job calls for, you know, being neutral uh, and and not rooting for a team. I'm very happy for the people like, like Sheila Fordham and Rod Wood and Mrs. Ford and Dan, Mm -hmm. all the people who I know around here, but I have some great friends in Tampa too. I just talked to their GM. uh, Yes. Jason light yesterday for a half hour. So excited for them. They were supposed to be a five win team and now they're a couple of wins from the Super Bowl. I, I, I am just watching it right up to the third quarter now of the first meeting between these teams, going back to review it. And Tim, they had open receivers. They had a ball tip. They could have gotten there, mm-hmm. uh, a miss on an overthrow. And they look much better when I watch them Monday night than they do in this game with sit up on my TV right now as I review it. So it is a better team. Lions fans have to know that there's no carryover from last week. right? The euphoria and that memory is great. You got to store that away for later on. It's it's a final eight game, and will the fans bring as much noise, passion, and energy as they did that first time around? I think those are important things for the home field advantage going into this one. You know, uh, also, Mike, I, I'm watching the coverage uh, on on NBC, and you know, it's those it's those stories outside of the game uh, that mean a lot too. A lot of the stories that you guys show, you know, and and that that just adds more to the impact of what's going on here in the city. Well, thanks for noticing that, Lloyd. We appreciate that. We, uh, that's what we strive to do. You know, on Sunday nights, you know, we have an audience that has watched football all day, and it's a national game. We try to tell the stories of the people who play, and we like to say we like to take the helmets off so you get to see and know who these players are and who these individuals are. You know, we do cover the Olympics. We'll be in Paris this summer for that. And I always believe the ethos of the folks who cover the Olympics, who do those profiles, mm-hmm. that usually seems to the broadcasts at a network and i know it does at nbc after my 25 years of espn which is wonderful and we got to tell a lot of stories there i really think it's a focus of what we do and how we do it and hopefully uh you learn about the people who are you know more than laundry more than just their uniforms right. they are 
people who come to live in your community, and it's nice to find out about them as individuals as well. And can I give your your production team some credit? The the shot after the game was decided, they found the guy in the stadium and gave us a close-up of a grown man bursting into <laughs> tears, which yeah. we now find out why. It's because he was thinking of his dad, who he attended yeah. games with. You somehow found, the your team found the picture of the moment that told the story of this city in one shot. And they did. Our camera guys are the best, and they were looking throughout the game for fans and just trying to identify the fans as they were going through who were the ones who were so into it and so excited. And uh, they've worked with our director, our Hall of Fame director, Drew Essikoff, for about 20 years, and that's why. You know, there, there's a high standard on the show, and those are the things that uh, we come back and talk about. Say, good, did we give you something to remember? Then we did our jobs for the night, and we'll try to do it again on Sunday afternoon. Yeah. At three o'clock. Well, as a recovering TV person, I really, really <laughs> admired uh, that that, that uh, production finesse. And of course, uh, we love you, Mike. We love the job you do, and we can't wait to hear you call what we hope will be a Lions victory Sunday at three. Well, a recovering legendary TV guy. <laughs> That's right. So That's right, Mike. That. That's so, right. Well, one of Thank my you. one of my favorites. Always when you put when you had guy on the TV, whether it was seven or four, you knew you were in good hands. And same thing here on seven sixty. So. Great, great to hear your voice and connect with you too, Lloyd. Great to talk to you guys. You, all yeah. right. You take care and have a great Sunday, Mike. Thanks, uh, guys. All right. Bye-bye. Mike Tirico, the NBC uh, Sports play-by-play and host. He is their franchise player in so many ways. When we come back, talk of expanding the people mover. Yeah, it's gone around in circles for years. I know. It's, <laughs> it's relevance. Uh, it's contributions, sometimes dubious, but there is a new plan in the works. And it will serve a much broader variety of demands in the process. We will talk with the general manager of the Detroit Transportation Corporation at 749 next on JR Morning. Last week at the Detroit Regional Chamber's annual Detroit Policy Conference, Mayor Mike Duggan revealed his vision for Detroit's future mobility, proposing a people mover expansion to cater to the rising influx of young professionals. The people mover is key to connecting entertainment and offices and residential in downtown Detroit. Let's find out more about the possibilities with Robert Kramer, who's general manager of the Detroit Transportation Corporation, joining us this morning on JR Morning. Robert, welcome. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, tough act to follow right after Mike Trico. He's been a busy man this week, for sure. Yes, he has. Yes, he has. So, so Robert, talk to us about uh, the the insight, the plan for the people mover. For years, you know, people used to say, you know, well, the people mover just takes you around in circles all the time. It's not really, you know, real, you know, transit. People use it to get from building to building. They would park somewhere else, get on it, park from building to building. People would come downtown and use it to get from one place to other. What 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 new look are we thinking about as far as the people mover is concerned? Well, sure. I think it's important, you know, just just briefly to think about, um, you know, today. So our, our top priority every day is we want to provide a safe and reliable uh, transportation option to get people around the downtown area. And obviously, it's a really exciting time to be uh, part of downtown. Uh, right behind that is we want to make sure uh, that um, that the people mover is a positive part of a rider's or a visitor's experience uh, in the downtown area. And, and that's really something that can apply whether it's today, you know, making sure that the platforms are free of ice and snow, uh, but really uh, uh, jives nicely uh, with what the mayor's trying to say as far as making sure we're thinking about how the people mover can best serve downtown as it continues to grow um, and develop. And so uh, the, the there's no um, plan per se in place now. 
what we're really trying to make sure is that we are taking the time to think about uh, how downtown has changed, um, also how the city has changed. We want to make sure that when people come downtown uh, from other neighborhoods in the city, from the region, visitors for conferences, uh, that we can do the best we can to be as, as helpful and a positive experience for as many people as possible. So uh, we will be studying this um, hopefully in the next couple of months, mm -hmm. uh, not with the eye of picking a certain particular plan that this is what we're going to do and this is exactly when we're going to do it, but just really uh, thinking about and talking with businesses, residents, downtown workers, um, a lot of the partners that are downtown uh, and in the surrounding neighborhoods and say, hey, what are some ways that we might be able to, if the right opportunity arises, uh, to really expand uh, or, or adjust the people mover to make it even more useful? Well, we should point out, too, Robert, that the, the potential riders have changed dramatically. I mean, when the, when the people mover came in, we did not have a thriving Woodward corridor between downtown and news center. We didn't have this indigenous population living in Capitol Park or in condos in the book Cadillac or elsewhere. So, I mean, with more people making this area their home, you've got a residential population that you need to serve now, too, not just commuters or visitors. Oh, definitely, 100%. I think that that's really um, top on, on the mayor's mind and top on, on you know, really, if you think about what's going on, you mentioned a lot of those buildings that are being converted, but we've also got the new apartment building that's right on the riverfront where Joe Louis Arena used to be. Um, and, and definitely, if you think back in the 70s and 80s when the people were designed uh, and compare that to today, in so many ways, you know, the, we didn't have, uh, we had Joe Louis Arena. That was the only true downtown sports uh, uh, venue, right? And we've got four sports teams. We've got thousands more uh, residential units. Um, but also, you know, Joe Louis Arena is gone. So that, you know, the station that used to be directly connected, I'm sure a lot of the listeners probably have fond memories of taking the people mover from their favorite parking spot or watering hole. So the arena is not there anymore, but now there's a whole nother uh, between West Riverfront Park and the apartments, and now there's a hotel in the works. Um, that's a really great example of, you know, how times change. And obviously it's not easy to move when you know, we have a track and stations like that. It's not easy to move it. So we want to make sure we really thought it through and, and, and really identified what the opportunities were. Uh, but it is a great opportunity uh, really to be thinking that way uh, because we know downtown is going to continue on this. Uh, uh, it's going to continue its development. That was going to say the same trajectory, but uh, I think uh, you know, COVID really uh, pushed us quickly in that direction you were just talking about with all of those residential units, maybe even more office buildings turning into residential. And, and, and Robert, considering the evolving landscape of transportation with advancements like uh, what potential driverless Ubers in the future, how does the people mover plan to stay relevant and, and serve the changing needs of the community? Well, I think that that's a great point. Um, and, you know, the opportunity we have, which is pretty unique, is we have uh, 13 stations. Those are uh, buildings, nodes, hubs. You know, they can turn into a lot of different things, um, uh, small business incubators. Those can really be useful. And when you have that, uh, the rail that's connecting people between them quickly and effectively, uh, to me, that just opens more opportunities for how we can support those things. So if you have a driverless uh, a vehicle system, if you've got some sort of shuttle, uh, we're talking about, you know, the, the uh, downtown Detroit to airport uh, express bus, you've got a downtown to Ann Arbor bus, all of those things, and the Q-Line, uh, uh, even though you know, we're both rail providers, they serve that whole Midtown corridor, and they cross our system in two spots where they can make transfers. 
So even as the, the landscape evolves when it comes to how people get around and how people get into downtown, the people mover, again, if we can continue to make those adjustments to keep it relevant as far as you know, safe, reliable, and, and maybe adjustments to the system, it can still actually be a, a big boost to those efforts uh, because it can be part of uh, the, the resource and the infrastructure that's used for those. At least that's, that's in my mind. Folks need a bit of a history lesson here. When Jimmy Carter sent those transit funds our way, it was for a system that was going to go up Woodward. It was going to be a couple of phases that was going to connect suburbs and the city. When you talk expansion, I mean, we're talking really about a 10-year plan here, Robert. What kind of what, what might that expansion look like? Will there be a spur that goes up Woodward or down Grand River, Michigan Avenue to the airport or to Ann Arbor? What would it look like? Well, sure. I, I think that's what we need to to study more so that we're prepared for opportunities. To me, the, the study, and, and I think this is exactly what the mayor was hinting at, uh, the study prepares you for those opportunities that might might arise. And there's a lot of investment, whether it's a big development site where it could be a, a valuable part of that, transit-oriented development, whatever it might be, we want to make sure we're prepared to support and be part of, uh, of whatever those developments might be. Um, it doesn't have to be a certain spur, like, well, we're really looking for, you know, Grand River, whatever it might be. But we want to make sure that we study how we can help those. And I think as part of that history lesson you're talking about, the people mover for people who are familiar with, with Chicago, right? So the people mover is supposed to be kind of like the loop downtown. Right. So it wasn't necessarily the people mover was going to reach out all those areas, but it was going to, to, uh, you know, to, to feed in from some really heavy investments, whether it's subway, elevated rail, whatever it might be, and move people around. Obviously, that's the part that never came to fruition as far as, as, far as getting people downtown. Yeah. But I do think that that's smart and, and even um, to a greater extent more recently maybe uh, DDOT is, is working with some things. You know, they're talking about BRT on Jefferson. As those improve, you know, again, right. that's another way where we can we can still uh, help uh, get people around. Yeah, there are other moving parts here. If only Mayor Young hadn't called Reagan Pruneface, we could have had all those transit <laughs> funds, Robert. We would be in a much better place today. Robert Kramer, thanks so much. We look forward to future conversations about a new future for the people mover. Great talking to you guys. Have a great morning. Good morning once again. Welcome to Thursday. Knocking on the door to what will be a wonderful weekend for sports fans, certainly. We're getting ready for the Bucks. They should hit town today. Uh, and uh, the, the Lions with a golden opportunity to do something that they haven't done before, which is to return to an NFC championship game. Can I just say, though, while we have been so joyously distracted by the Lions, yeah. did you see what the Red Wings have done in the past few days? They are now in third place in their division. They had a great overtime victory over the Florida Panthers last night. Dylan Larkin uh, getting the overtime goal. Uh, so they've got a uh, a point streak of seven games now with that three two win over the Panthers. Things looking pretty good. I and mean, we didn't do that on we didn't do that on purpose by not talking about the Red Wings. We we were no, you know, we're just yeah. But, but so a, I want to make sure we give them a little love today because they're moving things in the right. But it is purpose, purposeful for another team <clears throat> we, we want to talk about. <laughs> we had a great discussion with Mike Tirico, who who we dearly love and uh, does such a fabulous job on NBC. But he had a great sit-down with Roger Goodell yesterday. Visit Detroit had kind of a, a, a ramping up event uh, at its headquarters with the NFL commissioner there, Mike doing a Q&A with him. And at the very end of things, he was talking about the reason that they chose Detroit is the city's can-do spirit. And he says that is really being reflected in the Lions. 
And Commissioner Goodell, there's always been this kind of question out there, where and how and what went into them selecting the Lions to be the opening game against the Chiefs to kick off the season? I wanted to know that. Right? I mean, here you've got these guys that have had a, you know, not the greatest season. That's right. And But you selected them to, to face off against Kansas City. And it was a very interesting uh, revelation about when the commissioner began taking the Detroit Lions seriously. One of the things I was most impressed about, at the end of the season, all of our games are Sunday afternoon, and we have to reschedule those games the Sunday night before. And we had already scheduled the game, but uh, Detroit and Green Bay were playing each other. And there was a strong possibility the game would be meaningless for one team or the other. As it turns out, it was meaningless for Detroit as far as making the playoffs. But that game is what showed me what the Detroit Lions were all about. They came in and beat the Green Bay Packers in Green Bay. And that that was the start of saying this team has a, a character and a culture about it. And we started the season with the Detroit Lions, and that was intentional. And it was all because of that game, in my view, of let's see how they do when they go play the world champs in Kansas City. And they went and won. Wow. Yeah, that's now that is amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. That within the offices of the NFL, it began changing the discussion about hey, these guys are for real. This these are not the same old lions. And when they beat Kansas City, I'm sure that even solidified and, it even more. And it justified it. And yeah, it, and it turned out to be a, a great game. Uh, meantime, as we get ready for the Bucks in this uh, town, and uh, excited for that big game coming up at three o'clock at Ford Field. Uh, there's a little smack talk going on. Yeah, C.J. Gardner Johnson might be giving Baker Mayfield some, uh, some, just a little chip on his shoulder. So he was asked about the wide receiver core in Tampa, and he says if you give Tampa that Tampa group a good quarterback, that's a great group. Evans, Ooh. Godwin, and Gage—that's a great group. Gage meaning Russell Gage, and he hasn't really played for the Buccaneers all year. So Baker Mayfield responded yesterday, yesterday saying. I don't think he's really watched film because he mentioned Russell Gage. We love Russell, but Russell hasn't played a snap for us all season. <laughs> so I don't think you want to give Baker Mayfield any ammo right now. Uh, I mean, he's he's playing some of the best football of his career. Yeah, he is. Well, he's, had, he's got the highest completion rating he's ever had in his career, and that was with not such great start. Uh, no, that's right. And you know, he's, But he's really been putting it together with some fabulous games. Uh, meantime, I'm, we're trying to make heads and tails about what this means, but we know that Valley Sports went into bankruptcy. Uh, as part of the bankruptcy, a group called Diamond, I think they're out of the Sinclair group, have bought up the ass, some of the assets and rights that Valley would normally have. So now Amazon Prime will be the ones putting on the Pistons, Lions, and Tiger games for the foreseeable future. Exactly what that means, Nick, I'm not sure, but they say they will be working with regional cable outlets to provide those games. So at least... We're not going to have a streaming-only scenario yet, but we know it's moving in that direction. Yeah, and if you're someone who doesn't have access to Bally like I do, I have YouTube TV, doesn't have a Bally option, I, I like it. I mean, I like the move. I have Amazon Prime, so I can now watch a lot of Red fans Wings games. And- yeah, a lot of fans who have cut the cord saying, hey, this is, this is what we need. And understanding, when you pay that cable bill, uh, the lion's share of that cable bill goes to ESPN and to sports. Even if you're not a sports fan. Mm-hmm. It's uh, like a small car note. 
Yeah, so this <laughs> would so this may actually give folks long term a break on their cable bill mm-hmm. if you can shed offload uh, some of those costs. We'll see where it goes, but uh, that was a, a, an interesting uh, development yesterday. Uh, we know the Michigan Republicans going to be coming in town to TCF. Uh, last time uh, some of the Republicans were there, it was pretty contentious during the 2020 election. Oh yeah, uh, during counting time, but they're going to be holding a uh, state convention there to choose two-thirds of their delegates to the nominating committee. They've got a February event where they will choose the congressional district delegates, 39 of them. Uh, They've got the February 27th primary where one-third of the delegates, roughly thereabouts, will be chosen. But who's holding the gavel? Yeah, good question. Who will be holding? Will it be Christina Caramo? (laughs) We don't know. There's going to be a vote by the way, we had a great conversation with Vance Patrick. He's the chairman of the Oakland County Republican Party, who says, you know, there's going to be a vote on Saturday for uh, the B team or the other A team, depending on your perspective. <laughs> right. Uh, and then after that, it's either going to go to court or the RNC is going to have to choose who the winner is. Christina Caramo uh, said, look, I got 59 votes in the meeting that we had last Saturday. That's a majority of the 107 member state committee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we'll see where that goes. But uh, mark that down. March 2nd is when they'll be holding that convention. Between now and then, they're going to have to decide on leadership. Uh, and a significant legal development guide, the Oxford School District has filed a lawsuit against its insurance company seeking permission to offer $5 million per bodily injury claim related to the nine lawsuits arising from the 2021 attack at Oxford High School. The lawsuit challenges the insurance company's interpretation of policy limits, claiming that each individual shot by an assailant constitutes a separate occurrence. The dispute involves a $5 million cap, hindering settlement negotiations. Victims' families assert assert that the insurance company is obstructing a reasonable solution. The lawsuit's potential impact on insurance coverage law and Michigan suggests it may just have to hit the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court. Uh, meantime, the U.S. Supreme Court yesterday uh, signaling that it's very skeptical over this thing called the Chevron decision, which allows the administrative state, regulators, unelected bureaucrats to make judicial type decisions about whether or not regulations go too far. They signal that that may be coming to an end. In the meantime, if you're a small business person, New climate regulations that are about to take effect could have a dramatic impact on you. We'll be discussing that next on JR Morning at 719, excuse me, 819. We know that there are a lot of regulations coming down the pike uh, designed to confront climate change and to try to shrink carbon footprints across all sectors of our economy. We've seen it happen a lot in, in power generation and places like that. And certainly uh, the, the OEMs of the big three have done a lot of work early on to try to limit their carbon footprint, both in their products and in the, the production of them. There is a, an SEC rule, and we're not going to get into the weeds here, but listen, if you're a small business, there's a lot you can learn from this. And if you work for a small business, this can impact you as well. The SEC has a rule called Section uh, Sector, uh, Sector 3. And basically what it says is, scope three, excuse me, that you as a business must disclose to the SEC what the carbon footprint is of your business. That's every truck you send out to deliver your product. That's every, uh, you know, thousand square foot of uh, natural gas you burn to warm your plants or to power them. 
Uh, and then you also have to figure out what the footprint is of your suppliers. Okay. You're going to have to ask your suppliers what their carbon footprint is, what their distribution impact is. How truthful will that be? I mean, how do they... How about how that? accurate will Right, be? exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be at the very best an educated guess. Uh-huh. But think of the regulatory burden, the paperwork that must be done. Now, the folks on the climate side of things say, look, we got to know where the problem is. We got to know who the offenders are. We've got to know where the, this, the, the carbon's being generated if we're going to confront this efficiently. And they will say, and it's true, that this scope three emissions rule only affects those with $250 million in revenues or more. But today, a farmer from uh, Matawan, Michigan, a guy named Bill Schultz. He's head of Schultz Fruit Ridge Farms, a multi-generational family business. Uh, I, I mean, you, you don't get more all-American this. This is down in the southwest part of the state. And Bill Heising is going to have him testify today on Scope 3. And he says, look, I know you're saying this only affects big business, but I sell to big business. Uh-huh. I, and, and so what's going to happen? Um, the 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 Customers for my product are going to come back at me and say, Bill, we're going to need you to assess your carbon footprint. And by the way, we're going to need you to assess the carbon footprint of those that are inputs to your production. So the trucks that distribute your product, the trucks that bring the fertilizer to your farm, the fertilizer manufacturer, what's their carbon footprint? We're going to need you to disclose that to put all of this information into this scope three regulation that we're going to have to address. And he will be testifying on behalf of this, saying, you want to kill small business? This is one of the best ways to do it. He says, I expect most family farms in America will be impacted by this proposal because these farm products end up in the value chains of big public companies, whether it's a grocery store, fertilizer company, packer, or any other public company which regularly do business. And he says, between managing the farm, you pick, and restaurant, we already struggle to fill our necessary positions to the operation, let alone finding and hiring a highly specialized person to focus on data collection, which doesn't contribute to our bottom line. Right. So uh, good on Bill Heisinger. I think this is going to put this thing into focus. Oh, it's going to be right in the crosshairs. How burdensome this will be. Now, imagine... I don't care what your business you're in, but if you have a big business as your customer, they're going to be asking because you're a supplier. You you're supplying for right? for disclosure, right? And now, first of all, I think there's probably proprietary information here that they don't have any business knowing about. Secondly, but again, the climate lobby guessing, is going to say, "Got to know whether, got to know who the bad guys are." But if you're doing an educated guess, how do they check that? Well, exactly. That. And it's not even going to be a very and, educated. And do yes. I get in trouble if it's not right? Exactly. What do you do if one of your what if your fertilizer purveyor says, hey, you know, that's none of your business? Right. Well, now, am I going to be in default? Am I going to P.O. this customer who says, you got to give me this information? So Bill Schultz is going to be testifying and he says, look, I am on a sustainable farm. We're very careful about our pesticides, herbicides, other things we use. We're very careful about using low-cost delivery systems that lower our carbon footprint. We're one of the good guys. Yes. Quit <laughs> trying to kill us. And by the way, is there anything? Do you know what what his fruit trees do? They eat carbon. Uh, <laughs> hello. <laughs> So just a little something to watch out for. I'm going to try to get this this gentleman on. I That'd think he'd be, great. be a really interesting guest. You know, it's it's cold out there, uh, Guy, and everybody's uh, dealing with the cold. And electric vehicle owners are grappling with challenges and freezing temperatures as well, experiencing longer 
charging times and reduced driving ranges. A study by Recurrent Auto reveals that EVs lose efficiency in freezing conditions with ranges dropping by 40 to 70 percent. Dr. Kaysheng Wang from Wayne State University explains the cold weather hampers lithium-ion battery reactions. The silver lining is that the decrease is temporary and reversible in warmer weather. Dr. Wang advises EV drivers on optimizing battery efficiency in the cold and highlights precautions for high temperatures, emphasizing temperature-controlled charging environments. So in garages and those types of things. But we, we kind of knew that. You know, especially oh. it gets cold around here. How this that's going to affect those this has batteries? Been a horrible week uh, for companies selling EVs because it's really been a reality check, and it's been across the country. Across Every the, media yes. outlet is doing a story about the the trouble that people are having uh, charging these things. Now, uh, some good advice out there that you can, while you're charging your vehicle, you can heat it up so that you're not pulling out of the driveway and then heating it once you're on battery power. Right. You can use the grid to heat your car before you get in it. There's a way you can preheat, pre-treat your car before you take it out. But I talked, and it was a, it was a background conversation, so I can't attribute this to who it okay. was, but a, a state official who's got an EV. Okay. And she said, I wear three layers of clothing because I want to extend my range, and I don't want to have to stay. She goes, I don't run my heater. Um, you know, I didn't even want to ask her what happens See, when, in the summertime when she doesn't run her air conditioning. Air conditioning. And, you know, with the freezing cold, not even the charging, um, uh, charging up your vehicle, but the chargers a lot of times when they go and pull up to a charger to charge the vehicle, it's, fr- it's not working because it's so cold. Right. And so, yeah, so many things that we still got to work our way through. Um, we know we talked to Henry Payne from the Detroit News, who did a round trip up to Gaylord a couple of weeks ago. That was even before this big snap. Yes. Okay. This is when it was it was, it was normal, it was cold, but it wasn't like this. Yeah, it was yeah. normal winter weather. Uh, he had to charge five times uh, because, and and he also had difficulty finding chargers. And he said something interesting. Look, uh, a a lot of these chargers that are put in are one hundred miles apart. He said, if you look with with some of the lower range vehicles. Uh-huh. You're not going to make it, especially like the trucks. If you're hauling something, oh, that's already you reducing. Can't make it between some of those charges. That's right. That that you know are you know. So we're going to need them 50 miles apart or 25 miles apart for reliable uh, charging. Uh, when we come back at 8:35, going to talk to the play-by-play voice of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, you know they are just as excited as we are. This is the team that there were very low expectations going yeah. into the season, and they have defied all of them. So let me tell you, their fan base probably not quite as charged up as ours because I don't think so. you know they've had they've, they've had, had the Brady year. That's, the, that's right. And, you know they've they've had that's some right. uh, some pretty good success over the past few years. They've been to a couple Super Bowls. Uh, but this team is riding pretty high, too. So we'll get inside his head and find out what we can expect from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Meantime, very quickly, some interesting DUI stuff yeah, about, about fatal crashes. We were talking about road speed. About safe. 40% of uh, 1,053 fatal crashes, uh, vehicle crashes in Michigan involved alcohol or drugs in 2022. In Michigan, it's crying for a driver to have a body alcohol content of 0.08 or greater if they're over 21. And so there is a study that's coming out uh, for 2023. It won't be out to the summer of this year. Right, but showing that drugs are having an impact as well yes. now. As, but still, 40% of fatal accidents involving yes. some kind of impairment. 828 on Newstalk 760, back with the Bucks Voice.
I guess most NFL teams uh, travel on uh, Saturdays, and that means the Bucks will be hitting town then, so they're going to avoid this weather, thank goodness. <laughs> As we've learned right. from the embarrassing news conference, oh, I don't know Yeah, I don't know who... How are they going to handle that weather up here? Ah, uh, they have a dome. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, that was a funny moment. And apparently that was a news reporter covering sports, and yeah. I guess uh, that's what happens when you miss a sign. But uh, Roger Goodell was asked about the Lions being in this position. And he says, you know, he's, he said, I've learned a lot about football from Mrs. Ford. She's seen much more football than I even have. Um, and he said, Sheila Hamp has a perspective of, that I have found really interesting in terms of business culture. And so he was very complimentary to the two women that are heading up uh, the team's front office, uh, the, the, the chair of the team. But he said, you know what? There's something special, too, when one of the NFL originals, kind of like the original six we have in the NHL, Yeah, you know, the Lions, the Bears, the Browns, they were original members of this league. And he says there's something special about that, too. Well, it, I guess- it happens after so many years of frustration and... And disappointment, it makes winning so much better, doesn't it? It's, right? It, uh, it just makes it special. I'm not saying you wanted to go through those years. I get it. But the reality is it, it, um, the league has never been more competitive than it is today. Uh, it is harder to win in this league, and it's harder to continue to win. Uh, I think 18 out of the last 20 years, we've had a team go from last in the division to first. I think we have six new playoff teams this year, which is about average. To have that kind of competitiveness, I think, is great for the product and great for the fans. It is great for the fans. And the fans and franchises that do have a chance to bounce back, as have the Lions and the Buccaneers. Gene Deckerhoff is the longtime uh, radio play-by-play voice for Tampa Bay, joining us this morning. Gene, good morning. Hey, I hope it's uh, a little warmer up there than it is down here. I live in Tallahassee. It was uh, 24 degrees yesterday. Uh, but uh, hey, don't get the don't get the violin out. Play a sad song. Uh, I got a lot of <laughs> I got heavy clothes. I had to get those to come up to Detroit this week. Well, we've only got 22 here. Yeah. So uh, take uh-huh. what Kate, whatever you're wearing now is fine. Come, You'll be fine. It's a come as you are party. <laughs> um, <laughs> It'll be red. It'll be red. I'll promise you. You know, to to Roger Goodell's comments that this is highly competitive and we do have some parity and teams can go from worst to highly competitive. You guys have really changed the narrative around your team as well. What has been the key to that as you head to Detroit? Well, I I think that the number one, the uh, the the drafting and the free agency signings uh, by the Buccaneers front office. Jason Light has done a tremendous job. The Buccaneers have been in salary cap purgatory since uh, the signing of Tom Brady. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, the Buccaneers are probably have the largest salary cap hit of any team in the National Football League. And, and so all, all the Bucs do is they go out and draft players. That, that We have the one of the youngest teams in the NFL. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean a whole lot. But these are young guys that are playing at an NFL level, and that doesn't happen all the time. And, and that, give the success, one, to head coach Todd Bowles, but uh, 1A is to uh, Jason Light and that front office of the Buccaneers. Yeah. What a tremendous job they did. And how about the signing of Baker Mayfield? Nobody wanted Baker Mayfield. Yeah. The Buccaneers signed him, and, and I, I read an article somewhere, fellas, that uh, Baker Mayfield maybe is like the 49th highest-paid quarterback of the National it's Football It's the biggest bargain uh, in the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, now he just made a nice bonus with that one over Philadelphia. 
Uh, so he's got a lot of incentives built into that contract, but th- but his contract was guaranteed for four million dollars. Yeah. Everything else is uh, is gravy, I think, to to the Baker Mayfield family. That's a Costco contract. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, 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 Gene. Uh, you know, as as you know, the Lions uh, beat the Buccaneers back in October, uh, twenty to six. What's different now with the Buccaneers that we'll have to contend with this time on Sunday? Well, those those young players are now uh, they're veterans now. I mean, they played a full season in the National Football League, and uh, you know Trey Palmer, uh, sixth round draft pick, he catches a, a fifty two yard touchdown pass. Uh, Kate Otten, uh, probably not the number one tight end prospect uh, when he was drafted last year by the Bucks. He has a career game, eight catches, eighty nine yards, and oh by the way, a Buccaneer record that surpassed the great Rob Gronkowski for most catches and most yards by a tight end in a postseason playoff game. But uh, those are the things we talk about. For the fans, it was a Buccaneer win over the Philadelphia Eagles. But uh, and then uh, David Moore, David Moore was drafted by Seattle, a low draft pick, and uh, uh, been around the league for a while. He gets a 44-yard touchdown uh, catch, and, and it sort of replicated what he did against Green Bay. He broke the backs of the Green yeah. Bay Packers with mm-hmm. a 54-yard catch and touchdown run. Uh, he better hang on. He, he held on the ball a little longer when he scored this touchdown. But, uh, again, it revolves around Baker Mayfield. And uh, he has been the uh, if there's a solidifying uh, force on this Buccaneer team in that locker room, it has to be Baker Mayfield. Here's a guy that number one was the first to walk on player in the history of college football to be named the Heisman Trophy uh, uh, winner. Uh, he's a number one draft pick. Uh, all of a sudden, yeah. he takes cleat the play. Now, you guys in Detroit. Your fans listening now know how frustrating it is not to make the playoffs year in and year out. Cleveland was in the same boat, and Baker Mayfield took them to the playoffs, won a playoff game against Pittsburgh, almost beat Kansas City, although Patrick Mahomes was injured in that divisional game. But uh, then all of a sudden, Cleveland decides to go another direction. They give Watson a huge contract, and they they let Baker Mayfield go. He goes to Carolina. He had a high, he had not a high school, a college coach, Matt Rule, who is no longer in the NFL. A uh, new offensive coordinator, and he said, "Hey, I want out of here." So then he goes to Los Angeles, plays a handful of games out there, won a game his first, and uh, then nobody wanted him. I don't right. think the Bucks were number one on his list, and the Bucks got a, a genuinely playoff caliber quarterback in Baker Mayfield. Well, you point out too that if we double up on Mike Evans or Chris Godwin, that he has the wherewithal to get it to his other receivers yeah. as well. From your end of things, what are you going to do about Amon Ra St. Brown? And uh, do you double up on him? Because we've got lots of weapons, too. <laughs> uh, nobody's been able to handle that Southern Cal product. And uh, uh, Amon Ra is uh, the real deal. Uh, you know, it's hard for me to believe that the level he's playing, the National Football League, that he was not a, a first or second round draft pick. I mean, good golly. And he wore out the Buccaneers in that first game. And, uh, uh, well, you know, again, I'm talking Baker Mayfield. Uh, you guys are talking Jared Goff because Jared has had a phenomenal season. And I watched that uh, playoff game, uh, and it was uh, that was the best playoff game of the weekend, by it the sure way. sure was. Uh, except for the Bucks beating Philadelphia. That's, that's number one <laughs> on my list. But, but as far as a viewer and, and not having a, a dog in that hunt, or, uh, as they say, uh, the, 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 the win over the Rams was huge. Now, the Bucks fans were pulling for the Rams to win because we would have hosted the divisional round down in Tampa. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I watched the, uh, the, the Dallas-Detroit game, and, and I, I have to be honest, we had a game the next more, the next early afternoon, and I, and, 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 and I think Dallas picked off a pass there with less than two minutes to go. I turned the TV set off. Next thing I know, 
I missed one of the, the worst, I missed one of the I missed one of the worst calls of the history of the National Football League. Oh, we love you, Gene. Yes, we do. <laughs> I missed it. I, I fell asleep, and I saw it, you know, on, on replay. But uh, no, I, I thought I thought Dallas had that deal. I mean, and, uh, uh, son of a gun, they held on there at the end. But uh, yeah, that that. that, that the, the games the Buccaneers lost early, uh, you know, I don't think there's a thing. Uh, the coaches don't say that revenge is a motive. But I played, you know, I played college basketball. and We lost to a team. I was going to beat them the next time I played them. And, and I, I think revenge was a bit of a factor in that game against Philadelphia. So who knows? Uh, also an underdog, a home underdog, three and a half, four points uh, favorite Philadelphia. Uh, I think that all plays into the psyche. Uh, and I think the Todd Bowles is selling that psyche that hey, we're the underdogs. Nobody believes in us except us here in the locker room. And they go out and play. They play when the Buccaneers have played clean football. By that I mean few penalties, no drive killing penalties, uh, uh, no turnovers, and, and, and execute on first down. Clean football. The Buccaneers have won. We played clean football and uh, 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 went over the Green Bay Packers. I mean, Baker Mayfield had a perfect quarterback rating. First time ever an opposing quarterback has done that at Lambeau Field uh, against the Jacksonville Jaguars. Another clean football game. And against the Philadelphia Eagles this past Monday, clean football. It, it, it produces wins. I know it sounds like coach speak, but it produces wins at the National Football League, particularly, particularly in the playoffs. Gene Dickerhoff, longtime radio play-by-play voice for the Tampa Bay Bucks. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on JR Morning and Go Lions. I hear you go. Fire them cannons. Go Bucks. <laughs> All right. Gene, thanks so much. Take care. Uh, all right, fellas. See you on, uh, on Sunday. The American Cancer Society raising the alarm after a new report shows that cancer rates are rising for many of the most common cancers, breast, prostate, melanoma, uh, melanoma, colorectal cancer. And what's doubly alarming is it's striking younger Americans. What's behind it? And uh, how do we turn that around? WJR Senior News Analyst Marie Osborne looking into this report and these numbers and brings more information to us. Good morning, Marie. And good morning, everyone. So, yes, those cancers you mentioned, Guy, they're on the rise. But here's the really concerning part. People are getting those cancers at younger ages, and they're being diagnosed at an earlier age, and the cancers sometimes are more aggressive. Colorectal cancer, once the fourth leading cause of cancer deaths for people under the age of 50, now the leading cause for men and ranking second for women. Pancreatic cancer, one cancer that has long been difficult to treat and diagnose, it's on track to becoming the second leading cause of cancer-related deaths. But a tiny bit of good news about pancreatic cancer The five-year survival rate has increased to 13%, up from 6% just a decade ago. There's real progress being made in treatment, again, for pancreatic cancer. Now, back to the big question, and that's why. Why is this happening? Some researchers aren't sure why. Some point to increased obesity or something in our diet or the environment. One theory, the overuse of antibiotics, have been shown to impact our microdome. That refers to the trillions of bacteria that live in our gut. Some of them seem to be linked to an increased risk of colon cancer. Others point to our consumption of meats, ultra-processed foods, such as packaged cookies and chips, 
alcohol, tobacco, a sedentary lifestyle, all of those things could be contributing to this. And I just want to wrap up this information with a bit of good news. People diagnosed with cancer are living longer and dying less often. They did point that out. The five-year survival rate for cancer overall is 69% according to this study. That's up then uh, from less than half in the 1970s. And the overall death rate has been cut by 33% by 2021. So there is that one ray of hope. You know, Maria, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about these uh, cancer death rates that are shrinking. And I'm I know that the the smoking uh, rates have have gone down, and I know there are really good treatments, uh, better treatments now for cancer than, of course, there used to be. I've done, I've covered stories where uh, there have been these uh, new treatments and, and that have really saved lives. Uh, the study does show that out again, especially with this issue of pancreatic cancer. They are showing that the treatments are improving. The precious few that are available for uh -huh. pancreatic cancer. However, the what they're uh, what they're sounding the alarm specifically about is that younger people are getting cancers at an earlier age. And they're finding they're more aggressive. And, and one of the things they point to is colon cancer. Yeah. That younger people, the, the recommendation now is you start to get a colonoscopy at 45. However, mm -hmm. there is a caveat. If you have anything, any kind of uh, colon cancer in your family, you should discuss this, of course, with your doctor. But you may need to get that colonoscopy earlier than 45. Yeah, the kind of the takeaway here is we've, we've become much better at treating cancer. Yeah. Not so good at preventing cancer. Mm -hmm. And you, you, you mentioned the colorectal cancer in young people. A third of the people diagnosed under the age of 50 have that family history or mm -hmm. genetic risk. So you got you can't run away from your genes. Nope. And, and you got to pay attention to your family history. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it, and we also need to be paying special attention again to this use of antibiotics, to our environmental risks, to what we're eating. Our racial course, risk. I mean, there yes. are cancers that attack white Americans and black Americans more, depending on which cancer right. you're talking about. But also, yes. you know, going to the doctor and, and, and getting the checkups and, and catching cancer, if you, if you have it, catching it early, that helps as well as far as, you know, survival rates. Well, that's what has impacted, the study said that, that's what impacted the, the five-year survival rate for many of these cancers is that it's caught early because obviously we have, overall, we have better diagnostic uh, tools. Yeah. I, we've all heard of stories where someone goes to the doctor for one thing and then they're, they find that they have maybe an early cancer somewhere. Mm -hmm. Well, they're able to treat that. So that is, that's key also. Yeah. Uh, Marie, thanks so much. Uh, good warnings there. And uh, you can read more about this because it, depending on what your family background may be, you'll want to know about the specific cancer rates that this American Cancer Society uh, report revealed uh, based upon your specific history. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. It has been a busy morning for you and I. It really has. Great conversation that we had that you can find at WJR.com with the leader of the Detroit Transportation Corporation, how the people mover may change going forward because fewer commuters coming down to offices, but many more people are making living. Detroit their home. And how do you reconfigure the people mover to uh, to fill those needs and, and those demands? Offer uh, also a, a great conversation with Vance Patrick, who's the Oakland County Chair uh, that uh, for the Republican Party, who now wants to be the state 
chair and talks about the deep divisions within the Republican Party among people who think alike politically, but have very different ideas about accountability, transparency, and also fundraising success. Yes, and and he's had great fundraising success, and he thinks he can bring that to the state GOP because they're going to need something if they're going to you know, try to have some wins this year during the election. Yeah, lots of good takeaways. You can always find those in uh, podcast form or the entire show at WJR.com. Lloyd and I will be back. Uh, Jamie's going to have the rest of the week off. We'll be back tomorrow bright and early. The boys will be back in time. Yes, absolutely, at 6 o'clock. Until then, take care. All talk is next.